Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So let me ask you, have you ever heard the term Beeman-esque? Anybody ever heard that? No? I hadn't until recently. Uh, it originated in the 1968 Olympic Games. Now, does anybody know it? There was a young man named Bob Beeman who was competing in the long jump. He had overcome a ton in his life to get to this moment. His mother died before he was one. He never knew his biological father. His older brother had been brain damaged at birth by the abuse his mother had received from the father when she was pregnant. He was raised by his stepfather's mother in Queens where he joined a gang, sold drugs, and saw his friend stabbed to death. And then he was sentenced to one of the dreaded reform schools in the New York City for the socially maladjusted children. Beeman was athletic. There was a guy named Ralph Boston, an Olympian, who came to the reform school to just work with the youth and inspire them. Boston had won a gold as a long jumper in the 1960s, 60 Olympics, breaking the world record that was set by Jesse Owens 25 years earlier. Boston took Beeman under his wing, and Beeman has since said whatever he has achieved in life as a long jumper or anything, he gives credit to Boston, who started working with him when he was 12 years old. Their journey led them to the 1968 Olympics, and Boston and the Russian athlete were identified as the most likely to win the gold, and Beeman was actually having trouble even qualifying for the finals because he kept overshooting the takeoff board. And Boston finally, on his final try, coached him, and Beeman qualified. On the day of the Olympic finals, Beeman was extremely nervous, and Ralph Boston walked up to him and whispered in his ear, and it seemed to transform him. Later on, uh, Beeman said, physically, I was as close to perfect as I had ever been. Mentally, he said, I was not so strong. And he says, as I stood there, uh, about to approach the track for the jump, Ralph spoke to me, and his words took shape in my head. The words were, take off early. You have room to spare. Give him two inches on the front, and you'll have two feet when you land. You'll let your legs, uh, your, your legs have never been as strong as they are right now. At this moment, Boston said to Beeman, you're, you, you weigh nothing. Your mind has wings. Use them. Fly up and fly out. For 20 seconds, Beeman stared at the track. And then he shot forward with his head and his arms pumping like pistons. In six seconds, Beeman took 19 hard strides to a height of more than six feet into the air and landed. But there was a problem. Not with the takeoff. Not with overstepping the starting board. It was with the optical device that they had installed to measure distances in the sand. So for almost 20 minutes, it took the judges 20 minutes to find an old-fashioned tape measure to make the official ruling. Before 1968, the world record in long jump had only been broken 13 times in 100 years, and when the record was broken, it was broken by an average of two and a half inches. When Beeman's distance was finally posted, there was stunned silence. Beeman had jumped 29 feet, two and a half inches, almost two feet beyond the previous world record. After Beeman, no other athlete even wanted to try. They interviewed the Russian guy, and he said, compared to this, we're children. Another of them said, what's the point? He destroyed the event. 
This is nicknamed The Jump. Sports Illustrated listed as one of the top five greatest sports moments in the 20th century, which led to this new world, Beeman-esque. It's an adjective meaning a result so far superior to anything accomplished before that it's overwhelming, that it's incredible. So who's the hero of the story? Is it Beeman or is it Boston? See, I think the answer would be both. I don't even think Beeman thinks that he could have done what he did if it had not been for Bob Boston. As we've been working through this series called Intentional, we're trying to look at ways to make an intentional difference in this. We're we're focused on less known individuals in the Bible who lived very intentionally and changed, changed lives as a result and impacted our world. And that's what it's about, isn't it? How do we impact those people around us? One of them may be a person who will one day impact millions. As we build on the last two weeks, we address yet another relational issue we believe is something we need to be more intentional about as a people, especially in our world right now, because I think this world may be the most cynical culture that has ever been around in my lifetime. Cynicism is almost a prized value right now, driven by the belief that most people are generally selfish and dishonest. Maybe we're not fully aware of how this is affecting us, but its force is affecting every single one of us. Cynicism is like a deep smoke, kind of a sneering bitterness toward all things good and true that kind of envelops our culture. This pessimism affects our relationships with God and with others. Cynicism often develops, right, because of our experiences. We know that we get that, right? A friend hurts you and then someone else reminds you of them and you think, well, I know how this is going to end. So you keep yourself guarded. You kind of keep your distances with certain kinds of friendships. Cynicism cynicism starts to become the opposite of what we hoped for in life. We fell in love. That relationship ended. You threw your heart into it only to be disappointed. Cynicism protects us from being hurt again. Have you ever been, having been burned once and twice, we tell ourselves only a fool gets burned three times. So we guard our hearts. We don't fall in love or we don't love well because we don't want to risk. So when Jesus says the entire law in the Bible can be summed up in two commands, love God and love others as yourself, he's pushing back against this cynicism. And just listen to the classic 1 Corinthians 13 description of love. It says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. I like how another translation says it. It says, love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best in others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Instead of being quick to find faults, a follower of Jesus looks for and sees the best in others. Let's dive in and see how the Bible shows us this love today in a way through a more unknown follower of Jesus that still impacts us today. We're going to start in Acts 4. In those first days when Christianity was exploding onto the scene, the church in Jerusalem was growing and everyone was sharing what belonged to them and there were no needy people among them. And verse 36 says this, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is the first time we're introduced to this guy, Joseph, who we also know better as the nickname Barnabas. So one of my favorite people in the Bible. It's one of all of our favorite people in the Bible. If you've read it, you'd love this guy. In Greek, Barnabas is the word paraklesis. It's actually similar to paraclete, which is the same word used for the Holy Spirit. Both reference coming alongside someone to bring encouragement and comfort. Barnabas was known for being warm, positive, uplifting, able to see the best in people. He's referred to as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It was this virtue that worked through Barnabas to help open up the early church to converts of all nations. Now, he was a Jewish man from the island of Cyprus, greatly influenced by Greek culture. He's a Levite, which means he comes from a line of the tribe, uh, 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 of a tribe of Israel that had special responsibilities in the temple at Jerusalem. So Barnabas comes to Jerusalem, and he's wealthy, and he sells his land, giving money to the apostles to distribute as they felt like they had need to distribute to people in need. He brings his money and gives it with no strings attached. Now, we next see Barnabas in Acts 9. When he shared a few, we shared a few weeks ago about Ananias in Acts 9, how he talked to Saul, and who became Paul, who at the time was enemy number one. He had authority from Jerusalem. Paul had authority from Jerusalem to hunt down and arrest and sometimes kill the followers of Jesus. As Paul was hunting Jesus' followers, he has this incredible counter. He does a 180. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Ananias prays for Saul to be healed, baptizes him, and introduces him to the Damascus church where he starts uh, preaching about Jesus. And after which, Saul heads to Jerusalem to connect with the church there. In Acts 9, it says this, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how uh, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas created this place for someone else to belong. Nobody wanted to be around Saul in Jerusalem for good reason. He had previously written their warrants for arrest. He was authorized and and helped watch their friend Stephen be stoned to death. They didn't believe Saul had really changed. So who wants to stand up against these leaders of the church? Who wants to argue with one of the main leaders who is Jesus' brother James? It's Barnabas. Barnabas risks his reputation, his influence, his character, his position to vouch for Saul and bring him into the family to give him a place to belong. Barnabas is anything but cynical. He sees in people what other people don't see. He didn't see Saul as a killer of Christians. He saw someone who had the potential to take the gospel around the earth. When you glance around at the people surrounding you in your cubicle at work or in your neighborhood, who do you see? Is it someone, someone who is a threat to your position or a threat to your values? Or a, maybe at work, do you see him as someone who's just trying to manipulate the politics to climb over you? Or, or do you see someone who wants to be encouraged to be given a place to belong, someone who you are called to empower? 
Do you see the strengths in others and think, how can I help encourage and strengthen and build them up? See, like Barnabas, do you help them by giving them a seat at the table? After this, Saul goes back home to Tarsus for a time for a number of years and continues to grow. And and let's jump down to Acts 11. We see something really fascinating. Reports are coming to Jerusalem that there are Gentiles at the city of Antioch that are now following Jesus. Now, it doesn't surprise us today, but at the beginning, essentially all of the followers of Jesus were Jewish, other than Cornelius and his family and the Ethiopian eunuch, and there were a few other Gentile followers of Jesus. They didn't know that many Gentiles following Jesus until this report from Antioch. The leaders in Jerusalem wanted to check this out, and so they sent Barnabas. Antioch at that day was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So think New York City, Los Angeles. It's like Chicago, okay? It was the place where Ben-Hur and his chariot race was featured. It was a corrupt city with sex being worshipped at the Temple of Daphne and religious prostitutes all over the place. Yet in the midst of the corruption, this new church emerges. So let's continue reading. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith, and great many people were added to the Lord. Paul gets the credit for taking the gospel to Gentiles. Yet Barnabas was the one who paved the way. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, it says in the text, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I love that Barnabas had the humility to recognize that he couldn't do this on his own. That he needed Saul and his gifts. So he sought him out and said, I need to have you on this mission. He gave him a place again to belong and the opportunity to lead while he taught and mentored him and helped Saul develop his gifts. See, sometimes I think we're intimidated by the word mentor, like you need to be some kind of Yoda or something, right, dispensing all this wisdom. But that's not Barnabas' style. He doesn't sit behind a desk giving wisdom, but as Saul, he brings Saul alongside him and they do stuff together bringing other people along as you develop your project at work. Let them be a part of and see how you do. Let them see how you parent. Let them see how you live life. The text continues saying, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Barnabas and Paul go on their first missionary journey, planting churches all over Asia Minor. Now, in ancient literature, the order of names is significant. Barnabas was the leader on this trip. Many were coming to faith in God. There was deliverance from demonic, the power of powerful encounters and healings with God, and it says the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region, and persecution was stirred up. Then something happens in Acts 14, 14 when they go to Iconium. Paul's leadership begins to emerge more. Here Paul is used by God to heal a man crippled at birth. Upon seeing this miracle, the crowds say, the text says, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
Again, they compared Barnabas to Zeus, the chief god of the Greeks, and Paul was Hermes, who was the chief messenger of the gods. So in Jerusalem, Barnabas took Paul under his wing, gave him a place to belong. In Antioch, he gave Paul a place to come alongside and learn and begin to lead even more. When you look back at Acts 13, you see Paul beginning to take point as the leader among them, as the chief spokesman. Real leaders are not intimidated by the gifts of other people. In fact, they focus on building others up. Barnabas and Paul go through so much together. Like when they were in Lystra, Paul was stoned and considered dead, but the followers of Jesus gathered around him and Paul got up and the duo went on to other cities. The text says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's important to point out that as Paul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem to tell all that was going on with the leaders in Jerusalem, they began planning the next journey to revisit the cities that they had been to. Barnabas wanted to take this guy, John Mark, but back in Acts 12, this this young leader, John Mark, joined Paul and Barnabas on their first journey up at Antioch, and then he bails for some reason. So on the second journey, the text says, Paul thought best not to take... Uh, with them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with, had not gone with them to the work. And there arose, it says, a sharp disagreement. This is really strong terms. These guys are arguing really strongly. So it became so much that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening churches. The author Luke doesn't take sides when he shares this story of disagreement. We don't know why John Mark bailed on him. We don't know why Barnabas wanted to take him and why Paul was adamant that he did not go with them. What we do know is that Barnabas, again, committed to giving him a second chance. And he takes John Mark on their own trip and Barnabas discipled him. And what we know from this is that we need to be committed to raising other people up. We especially need to be committed to the young people. We have to be willing to give others a second, a third, and a fourth chance. Someone once said, we cannot control the choices of others, what others make, but we can control the words that they hear. Isn't that powerful? We can help them walk through some of their messes, and help them forge their character and faith that will be able to sustain them. Now what we've seen in John Mark is his story was not done. Barnabas knew it and was willing to step in and cheer him this underdog on and take him under his wing. As Christians, we're patient with the failures of others. That's what the call on our life is, to be intentionally patient. Later in life, we do see Paul ask for John Mark. Paul writes, So find Mark and bring him with you, for he is a tremendous help for me in my ministry. So he changes. John Mark also writes the Gospel of Mark. And it's clear that without Barnabas, Paul might have lived out his days making tents in Tarsus. It was Barnabas who believes in Paul when he first came to Jerusalem, when the leaders were afraid, uncertain about him. It was Barnabas who fought for, found him during that in-between time years and brought him to Antioch. 
Barnabas never wrote a book in the Bible, but much of the New Testament could not exist without the encouragement he gave Paul and John Mark. All of us need a Barnabas in our life, and all of us are called to be a Barnabas to people around us, to help them see what they can't see in themselves. See, Barnabas saw the gold in imperfect people. You see how Barnabas looks at life when he went for the first time to an imperfect church in Antioch. When he arrived, he says he saw what the grace of God had done. His focus was always looking beyond the imperfections and seeing the grace of God at work in people around him. Maybe it's a little bit like those metal detectors. People use searching for money and stuff and sand in the parks. It's like Barnabas had this grace detector that searched intently for the potential in others. As followers of Jesus, we're to do the same. We intentionally encourage because the danger is discouragement can stop the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. What if because of your discouragement, someone gave up on that dream or walked away from their calling? or gave up on a relationship or a job because we discouraged them. See, encouragement is powerful and essential for healthy relationships. Encouragement builds resilience and grit in us. Resilience is the ability to bounce back when things have gone bad and, uh, and when we've made mistakes. It, it helps us restructure the critical inner voice that says there's no hope for change for you. Encouragement builds grit that makes you want to keep going. I mean, think about a time in your life where someone encouraged you to keep going or keep pushing. What did it feel like? Did those words stick in your brain for the future? Do you hear those words even when you face a new difficulty today? Remember Ralph Boston and his words to Beeman. It helped give him the focus to fly. Encouragement also builds trust. Encouragement forges trust in relationships because it helps you feel accepted. That in the midst of your flaws, in the midst of your mistakes, someone else can still see good in you. That trust in you from someone else makes you feel safe, more able to fly and take risks, which leads to the next point. Encouragement builds safety by which we are able to make change. See, what I mean by this is growth happens most in us when we feel safe. It doesn't mean that we'll not take a risk. It doesn't mean that everything is always going to feel easy or cozy or comfortable. But when we feel unsafe, we are more likely to self-protect. We do things that make us feel stable and safe rather than doing something we need to do in order to grow. Now, because my wife is a counselor, we talk about psychology a lot around our house. The need to self-protect had us talking about attachment recently. Attachment is this bond children have with their caregivers, their parents, which allows them to have a secure base from which to develop. Or, if they don't have it, an insecure base which affects their ability to learn, to be motivated, and their willingness to explore new things. Without a strong attachment, one will have difficulties in relationships. 
And some research today suggests between 35 and 50% of Americans have insecure attachment from their early years of life. Meaning that we have a lot of people who have not known what it is like to feel safe and secure in a relationship, leaving many struggling with how to have healthy relationships with God and with others. Trust is a huge issue in our world today. Barnabas created places of safety where Paul, John, Mark, and others knew they were accepted, that they were believed in, and that they could make mistakes and still be believed in and encouraged, which allowed them to take risks and live a life of faith that made a difference. And that's what I want us all to be more intentional in doing. That's why one of our values at Quest, which you may not read our values often, but one of our values is, oops, try again. That we give each other the acceptance and the space where we cheer each other on to take risks, and even when it doesn't work out, we help them land well and continue to take more risks. Those kinds of relationships are what bring healing. Because over and over again, I see people not growing in their relationship with God because they've had painful relationships with others. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was someone else who harmed you in a way that makes it difficult for you to connect with God and with others. Then I've also seen how beautiful and powerful a church can be where those who couldn't trust God or the Holy Spirit build a relationship with someone who knows how to encourage, how to be a safe and trustworthy person. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody in your small group. Maybe it's in your marriage that you discover that. And when you experience that safety, you're then able to trust God in a deeper way and you grow like never before. See, I just think we have to be open to how God may use us to help others by first embracing safety and acceptance through encouraging them. God longs for you to know how deeply you are loved. If you can be part of increasing that awareness of how you deeply you are loved and how much God is for you and how God has gifted you and God has gifted other people, let's do that. I mean, encouragement simply looks like being there, asking how someone's doing, hanging with, and one, hanging with one another, listening to their stories, and telling them and highlighting the good things that they're doing in life, verbally reminding them of their strength and the truth about how loved and how gifted they are by God. Just last week I heard a story of someone who in third grade was told she had a gift. It was a gift of writing. And that word just changed their entire world and set her life on a trajectory for really good stuff to happen. In our cynical world, don't underestimate the power of a positive word of encouragement and what change that can make. The Bible tells us our words carry much weight. It says the tongue can bring death or life in Proverbs. Another place it says, and never let ugly or hateful words come from your mouth, but instead let your words become beautiful gifts that encourage others. Do this by speaking words of grace to help others. With a word or a look, we can destroy someone's confidence or we can remind them of how tremendous God has made them and how he sees them. We see the truth of what the Bible says about what words can do in our, even in our brain research today. It's seen in Newberg and Waldman's book, Words Can, bring, uh, can Change Your Brain. 
They, they noted that positive words can strengthen areas in your frontal lobes, which has to do with cognitive functioning and making decisions. Encouragement has been shown to send a dopamine fix to your brain, which is kind of that feel-good chemical. Whereas negative words increase the activity in the amygdala, which is the fear center in your brain. And that releases hormones and neurotransmitters which interrupt the functioning of our brains. They send alarm messages that shut down the logic and reasoning centers of our frontal lobes. Even brain science shows this showing again how true the Bible is when it says some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Positive words help our brains think better. Paul believed strongly in encouragement as well. In his letter to the, to the Thessalonians, he wrote, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. The author of Hebrews says it this way. It says, But encourage one another daily. How often? Daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encouragement has power. Jeremy Riddle, one of my favorite worship leaders over the last number of years, uh, wrote, Raise, Raise a Hallelujah, You Make Me Brave, No Longer Slaves. We've sung out some of his songs. He said this, Encouragement is like oxygen to the human spirit. Don't forget you're carrying someone else's air. Encourage them. Help them breathe. Maybe it seems a little dramatic, that picture, but I think it helps give a visual that encouragement is vital, just like breathing. We all need encouragement, and we all need to be encouragers. Encouragement is not just for the weak. It's for all of us. It helps us live well. It helps our hearts not get hard. So how do we want to walk this out this week? I just want to pause for a moment and I want to take a moment for you just to to take a silent moment and listen for the Holy Spirit. Who is someone the Holy Spirit is highlighting for you where you're to be a Barnabas to them? What's something you can say to them today to affirm them? I'm just going to give you a moment to think about that. For some of you, uh, maybe this message struck you as uh, this point of contact where you're realizing, man, there's a lot of cynicism in my heart and seeping into my world. So maybe the application for you this week is to let the Holy Spirit bring encouragement to your soul for you to begin switching the cynicism to seeing the good that's going on. And, you know, if if you're struggling enough, it wouldn't be wrong for you to ask other people to encourage you either. That's perfectly appropriate. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you that you are a God who continually gives us second, third, fourth, fifth chances. That you, we see a glimpse of you in Barnabas, and you are so much bigger than that. That you see us You see the best in us, even when the worst is coming out. That you come to us and save us and believe in us because you created us with a purpose that is divinely inspired by you, that is far better than we could ever even imagine. 
that you've gifted us in ways that are powerful and essential for the goodness of life all around. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come to us and that you would breathe life, that oxygen of encouragement into us about how you've made us. And Lord, would you also breathe through us that life to other people around us. Lord, that we can all together as your church see our lives changed because we encourage each other and because of how we encourage others that they would experience your love and your power through us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you turn your hearts toward worship? We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.